0: We'll take your Bibles and open to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. On this Christmas weekend, we're going to extend our celebration of the Lord's incarnation one more Sunday and look specifically at the Lordship of Christ. The title for today is Jesus, Lord at Thy Birth. And that should have obvious application to you and obvious uh, allusions to which song that is... Uh, Referencing in Thalaenai, but also I think it'll have uh, some some meaning as we pull through this text that kind of stitches Paul's message together. Philippians chapter two. We're going to be isolating our attention at verses five to thirteen, but I want to read verses one to thirteen just to give us the momentum that we need. Philippians chapter two. Paul says, therefore. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and any compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another "...as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard the equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself." taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and And to work for his good pleasure. Yesterday was Christmas Day. And that culminated a few weeks. Or really a season of celebration. About the birth of Jesus Christ. The incarnation of God. And I trust that you were mindful and worshipful. As we freshly considered the unparalleled event of God becoming a man. The incarnation. We celebrated The word Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. You know that well. Remember Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, And shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. We have sung this weekend and over the last few weeks of his greatness and of his deity. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared, and the soul felt its worth. So much rich theology in these carols, and we should, and sometimes we do, sing them year-round. There's one theme that has is always revisited in the in our favorite carols, and I think it's worth our consideration this morning. Kids, just kids alone, give me some help here, okay? How does the song go? What, what's the word say? Joy to the world, the who. What does he say? Good, the Lord. And then that strange grammar is come, right? The Lord has come. The Lord is come. Who's come? The Lord. And then our title for today from the precious, precious lullaby of Silent Night Jesus, Lord at thy birth. Talking about the lordship of Christ, the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ is at the center of understanding who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and why Jesus came. Now we can wrongly understand lordship if we just attribute our understanding to the titles in the UK. Josh, I'm sorry if I'm if I'm speaking out of turn here, but in the UK they. They, they pronounce lordship on on peaks uh, on people, and if you're a lady, you get to be a lady, or if you're a man, you're a lord. I looked up, what does it mean to become a lord in England? I kind of wanted to know. Three traditional ways to become a lord or lady in the UK. You can marry someone, first of all, who's inherited a parcel of land and gain the title through marriage. So if they're a lady or a lord, you marry them and you become one. Secondly, you can purchase a parcel of land from someone who has been bestowed the title of Lord, and you get to take that on yourself as a new landowner. Or the best way, the easiest way, the less expensive way is to have the title bestowed on you through the house of commons. That's less expensive, but far more unlikely. And you can be pronounced Lord. Now, these are Honorary titles, and they are meaningful in as far as they go, but they really have no teeth. The lords and ladies in, in the UK don't go around wielding any special power because they are a lord. These are only titles. Such honorary titles, though, are not what the Bible means when it calls Jesus Lord. The term is kurios in the Greek. It means master either over a slave or over a follower. Now, think that through. Master over a slave in a working relationship or over a follower in a discipleship relationship. Lordship implies loyalty, submission, and obedience to the one recognized as the Lord by the follower or by the slave. Jesus is said to be The Lord, not a Lord, the Lord. And he is either your Lord now or he will be your Lord in the future. But he will be your Lord eventually. The accent on Jesus' Lordship is profound. This might surprise you. It startled me when I I learned that Jesus in the book of Acts, just the book of Acts alone, is called Lord, referred to as Lord, 92 times. You know how many times he's referred to as Savior? Twice. What do you think the accent of the apostles and the writer Luke was on the Lord? He is Lord. The Lordship of God is is really a, a theme that runs through all the scriptures. We read of the Lordship of Jesus in the New Testament. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But the Lordship of God runs from the opening chapter all the way through the Bible. One place it's accented, we've looked at before, is in the third commandment. We have the Ten Commandments. The third commandment is really about the Lordship of God. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of, listen, the Lord your God, in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now, we have historically taken that as a, a verse about cursing and cussing. And I guess by implication, way down the line of application, it could apply like that. But this, this is not intended to control cursing and cussing per se. You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The word take is the Hebrew word nasa, it means to wear or to carry or to present and the point is if you take or bear or carry the lord's name if you say you belong to him you should not associate yourself with him in a vain meaningless way if you take the lord's name if you present others as being yourself as being a follower of the lord and and you don't live up to that standard you're taking his name you're wearing his name carrying his name in a vain way. And the key is in that passage twice it says the name of the Lord. The Lord. The Master. That's who God is. God expects from the third commandment that his followers carry his name with commensurate dignity and obedience and representation. Now, with those background thoughts, I want us to briefly, and it's going to be a brief look. There's so much theology in the passage before us. It could literally take months to unpack. We're going to look at Paul's portrayal of Jesus, the Lord, in Philippians 2. Specifically, we're going to look at four portrayals of Jesus' lordship. Four portrayals of Jesus' lordship. The first is in verses 5 to 9. It's... This, he's an exemplary Lord, an exemplary Lord, an example. He's our example. And that's exactly what Paul is outlining here in the way he, he structures this chapter. Now, the way he structures this chapter is not only genius in his own mind, but it's also very indicative of the way the Holy Spirit teaches. Because here's what he does He says, I want to give you a practical application, I'm going to give you an indicative. Be humble and be unified. That's the the imperative, that's the the command. Then he gives us the the theological reasons, the Christological reasons why we should do that. And after explaining it to us, the Christological uh, profound understanding of Jesus' Lordship, he gives us more practical application because of that. Said another way, all application should be rooted in theology. Paul demonstrates that. And all theology should blossom forth in implication, and an application. There's a beautiful cycle in this chapter. Do this because it's the a theology. Now that you've seen theology, do that. It's amazing how it works. Now, he's been talking about being humble, and he begins that. Well, he talks about unity in the first two verses, and the key to unity in the church is humility. So he says do nothing. Do nothing is is a, a, a comprehensive all-encompassing statement. Do nothing from selfishness is the same thing as, do, as saying do everything from selflessness. You, you, you see both sides of that? Do nothing from being selfish. Or empty conceit. The empty is like vain bragging, vain looking up to yourself. But with humility of mind, who you think about, how you think about yourself rather, regard each other, one another as, get this, more important than you are, more important than yourselves. How do you do that? Verse four tells us, don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. In other words, selfless living is built on identifying selfishness, eradicating it and making our goal in life that everyone we're around has their interests met their needs, met their thoughts, bettered because they're in the space that we're occupying with them. It's incredible. That's the, applic- that's the practical imperative that he tells us. And that's worthy of a whole sermon in and of itself. But what I want to show you is the exemplary nature of our Lord regarding that implication, that application. Be humble. Look at other people as more important than, than you. Then he says this in verse five, have this attitude, what attitude? Humility of mind, it's all in your mind, how you view others, how you view yourself. Have that attitude in yourselves, which was also where? In Christ Jesus. He was the example for this. And then he goes on a huge tangent of Christology to talk about the nature of our Lord himself. And again, we're we're just going to mention this. Who, speaking of Jesus, although he existed in the schema of God, the the form of God, God's nature, he was God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The word grasped is, is really interesting. It means leveraged, bragged about, utilized. He didn't go around flexing all his divine muscles all the time. In fact, really interesting. We see the divine circumstances around his birth. We just celebrated that. We see what happened a week and a day later with Simeon and Anna. Then we find another encounter with him in the temple when he was 12, and then two decades of silence. Two decades of silence. Now, just think think about this. God is in flesh on the planet. And two decades of silence. If that had been you or me, everyone would have known it. He didn't brag about it. He didn't utilize it. I just always have this picture in my mind of Jesus. There was only about 500 people in the Nazareth city where he grew up. Everyone knew everybody. He's walking around there bumping in crowds and, and uh, you know, getting up early and going down to the well. And everyone's just walking around Jesus. And he doesn't say, hey, by the way, I'm God. I don't know if you knew that or not, but I just thought I'd tell you, I'm God in flesh. Wouldn't you? He didn't. Such Humility. In fact, he goes on to talk about how he did that. Verse seven, he emptied himself. This is the Greek word that from which we get the, this idea of kenosis. He emptied himself. He didn't become any less God, but he did take on the form of a slave being made in the likeness of men. He didn't become less God, but he did become fully human. Being found in appearance as a man, he looked like a man, he ate like a man, he slept like a man, he talked like a man, he had emotions like a man. But here's the application. Remember, our command is to humble ourselves, right? He humbled himself. And then there's the gospel, the cross, by being be, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's just an aside in Paul's description of, of Christ's humility. It's incredible. But what I want to get to is verse 9. For this reason, his humility, his obedience, his exemplary nature, because of who he was being equal to God, so it's his ontology, who he was, his praxis, what he did because of Jesus. For this reason, God highly lifted him up, exalted him. And don't miss this. He gave him, he bestowed on him, not a name, but the name. There's a a definite article here. The name, which is above every name. God highly exalts Jesus and he gives him a name. He bestows on him a name, which is above every name. Take a little aside here. Who Jesus is, was, what he did, what he does, is all bound up in his lordship. Isaiah 6, welcome to turn there, you listen if you want. Very familiar text. In the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw, this is an important word. I saw who? The Lord. Didn't say Elohim, God. I saw the Lord. Think about that. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, Isaiah says, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. His robe is so massive. It just extends throughout the floor of the whole temple. One of these seraphim calls out to the other and says, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord." There's our word again of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. While the temple was filling with smoke, probably probably the smoke of worship incense. Then I said, Isaiah speaks. Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips. Can you put a bookmark in your mind on that for just a moment? I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord, the King, the Lord, there's our word again, of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongues. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin Is forgiven. It's an amazing picture of Isaiah's commissioning his salvation and his sanctification. It's incredible. Let me ask you a Bible trivia question, okay? Who was sitting on that throne? You'll say God, and you'll be right. What if I get specific? Which member of the Trinity was sitting on that throne? Be careful because in Luke excuse me John chapter 12 John says though Jesus had performed so many signs before the people they were not believing him this was to fulfill the words of Isaiah the prophet which spoke which he spoke the lord has who has believed our report this is Isaiah 6 later Who's believed our report who is to whom has the arm of the lord been revealed For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their hearts so they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Then John says this, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah is seeing a vision of one of the members of the Trinity, and John tells us that Jesus informs us that that was him sitting on that throne. John's interaction with Jesus is such a study in and of itself. Remember, he's laying on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. Then in Revelation 1, verse 16. He sees the resurrected Lord in his glory. And he says, Jesus' face was like the sun shining in its full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. I love this. And he placed his right hand on me saying, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. All of this is vital as we come to the last phrase of verse 9. Obedient to the point of, excuse me, um, he bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Now, what name is that? What name is that? Is it as we sing, Jesus, Jesus? There's just something about that name. Well, let's keep studying and see. First portrayal of Jesus' lordship and exemplary Lord. The second, a divine Lord, a divine Lord. We find out something about this name. So at the name of, verse 10, of Jesus. Now Jesus, Jesus has many names in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament and in the Old. Now I'll try to be brief, but I'll try to be quick. And we'll post this tomorrow. Just don't even try to keep up. He's called the Almighty One in Revelation 1.8. The Alpha and the Omega in Revelation 22.13. He's called our advocate in 1 John two one. He's referred to as the author and perfecter of faith in Hebrews twelve two. He's our authority in Matthew twenty eight eighteen. The bread of life in John six thirty five. He's the beloved son of God in Matthew seven excuse me three seventeen. He's the bridegroom in Matthew nine fifteen. The chief cornerstone in Psalm one eighteen verse twenty two. He's the deliverer in First 1 Thessalonians 1.10, faithful and true in Revelation 19.11. He's the true shepherd in John 10.11, the great high priest in Hebrews 4.14. He's the head of the church in Ephesians 1.22, the holy servant in Acts 4.29 and 30. He's the great I am in John 5.58. He's Emmanuel in Isaiah 7.14 and Matthew 1.21. He's the indescribable gift in 2 Corinthians 9:15, the judge over the earth in Acts 10:42, the king of kings in Revelation 7:14, the lamb of God in John 1:29, the light of the world in John 8:12, the lion of the tribe of Judah in Revelation 5:5, 5, 5. the mediator between God and man in 1 Timothy 2:5. He's the Messiah, the Christ, John 1:41. The mighty one in Isaiah 60, verse 16, the one who sets captives free in John 8:36, our hope in 1 Timothy 1:1, our peace in Ephesians 2:14. Jesus is the prophet in Mark 6:4, the Redeemer in Job 19:25, the mediator in the same in Job 9, the risen Lord in 1 Corinthians 15:3 and 4, the rock that people drank from in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, the sacrifice for our sins in 1 John 4, 10, the savior in Luke 2, 11. the son of man in Luke 19, 10, the son of the most high in Luke 1, 32, the supreme creator over all in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, the resurrection and the life in John eleven twenty five, 25, the door in John 10, 9, the way, the truth and the life in John 14, 6, He's the word in John 1.1, the true vine in John 15.1, the truth in John 8.32, the victorious one in Revelation 3.21, wonderful counselor, mighty God, father of eternity, and prince of peace in Isaiah 9.6. And that's just a little sampling. I was talking to my wife, my precious Kim, last night about this, and she said, yeah, what about the name we don't know about? She said, there is a name that he has that we don't know about. And she's right. Revelation 19, 12. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. I've I've, I've been asked before, what's that name? (laughs) So, are any of those the name that God bestowed on Jesus? And the answer is no. None of those are the name that he bestowed on him. Is, maybe it's the name Jesus that every knee will bow to and every tongue will confess. All right, a small little Greek lesson. And you can understand this because it comes across in the English. There's a. There, there's something called a genitive of possession. It's simply saying of. And there's something called an appositive, which is a renaming. For example, um, if I said, that's Aaron's piano. You would say, that's the piano of Aaron. That's a possessive. That's the place he sits and he shepherds us. And we call it his, even though I know it belongs to the church, but you understand that's his piano. But if I said, that's our music pastor, Aaron. That's an appositive. One is a possessive. One is an appositive. This is a possessive. It didn't say at the name Jesus, every knee will bow. It says at the name of Jesus, at Jesus' name, said another way, at Jesus' name, which God bestowed on him, the name he gave him. What name is that? Look down at verse 11. We know that every knee will bow. Those in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, that's people and angels and demons that every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Kurios. He's Lord. That's the name. That's the name God bestowed on him. Why is that important? Why is that connected to Christmas? Because only God is the Lord. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord. The Trinity is just so wonderfully woven in this passage. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first. I am the last. There is no God besides me. Isaiah 45.3, I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealths of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. Only God is the Lord. <laughs> when God the Father bestows on Jesus the name above every name, the name above every name is deity, is Lord He didn't give him that because he earned godness in his life. Jesus, Lord at thy birth. Now, before anybody gets too animated and you think, ah, I really like that song, Jesus, Jesus, there's just something about that name. Now I can never sing it again. Yes, you can. We're going to sing about Jesus, I hope, until he takes us home. We should always look at that name as precious. That's the name that means salvation, that the angel told Matthew, name your son this. It's a precious name. It's just not this name in Philippians 2. It's not a summons. This is not a call for anyone to diminish our love for the Lord's earthly name, Jesus. It's a call for us to see that Jesus is Lord, which means he's God Every knee and every bow don't, every knee uh, doesn't bow and every tongue doesn't confess that a man was named Jesus. Every knee bows and every tongue confesses that that man named Jesus is Lord. He's God. He's a divine Lord. Number three, and these are brief, he's an absolute Lord. Let's go back and pick it up. It says, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. That's people and angels and demons. And every tongue will confess that reality that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a quote from Isaiah 45, 23. Every knee will bow. The Lord is absolute, meaning everyone, listen, everyone will eventually bow the knee to the Lord Jesus and confess that he is God very God. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. He is the only way. Everyone will eventually. Why wouldn't you now? Everyone. Every knee. Every tongue. This will be now in sweet, loving relationship as adopted children or it will be in judgment and in agreement with Him as one enters into hell. Doesn't this theological uh, understanding that Paul gives us here in Philippians color a little bit in a wonderful way? Romans chapter 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses. Confesses, resulting in salvation. You will confess now. Everyone will confess now in this life or they will confess one day and that one day will be when it's too late. Yes, you are just in judging me because you are indeed the Lord. He's absolute. But he's also personal. Number four, he's a personal Lord. Now, as I said, he gives an imperative gives the theological reasons why we should obey the imperative. Be humble, like the Lord. He tells us about the Lord, Jesus. Now, he has another practical application after that. So then, based on what I just told you about the Lord, so then, my beloved, just as you always have obeyed, not only in my presence only, but, but now I'm much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. He's personal. If he is the Lord before whom everyone will submit someday and now submitting to him now is a personal commitment of submission and loyalty to him so that the salvation he gives us Remember the third commandment? We don't wear the name of the Lord in vain. The salvation that he gives us is worked out. It's lived out. Justification, becoming saved, becoming right with God, being given God's righteousness in Christ and taking our, ta, his taking our sin away and putting it on Jesus on the cross. That is what we call monergistic, mono one, uh, uh, Ergon, the, the work, it, it only comes, only God does that. God alone works in our justification. This though, sanctification, which is work out your salvation, in fear and trembling, is what we call synergism, synergistic, which means that we, this is incredible to even say, we cooperate with God in our sanctification. How do we know that? Look at the text. Work out your salvation and fear and trembling. Simple enough, right? For, It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So when you obey God, who's doing that? You or God? Yes. When you obey, is God doing it? Yes. If he wasn't, you wouldn't. When you obey, are you doing it? If we're not, why do we have so many commands? There is no such thing as let go and let God anywhere in the Bible we cooperate in our obedience in our wrestling with sin in our struggling against sin in our trying to honor and obey God we we lean on him he works through us he walks with us cooperation not perfectly but progressively now i can't resist He gives a practical application to his practical application. Now, if you were going to say, Jesus is Lord, he is God, you're going to confess him one day. If you confess him now, he owns you. You work out that salvation in fear and in trembling for the glory of God. What example do you think Paul would grab as to how we're supposed to live that way? Look at the next verse do all things without grumbling or disputing, complaining. (laughs) It's incredible. Glory of the Lord, giving the glory of his name, special name to Jesus, the, the Lord God himself. We're to be humble as he was. We're to work out our salvation. How? Quit complaining. Quit complaining. Don't grumble and dispute. That's what those two words mean. Complaining is a serious spiritual sin. And doesn't it make sense that Paul would say, the first practical application of my general application of working out your salvation has to do with your tongue. Jesus says, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When Isaiah said, woe is me, for I'm a man of sin. Where did he identify as sin? I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. What did James say? Anyone who controls his lips is a perfect man. Now, there's a lot of other commands in the book of Philippians, but I think that it's, it's not, not hidden that Paul's saying, Work out your salvation in fear and trembling because we have a great God who came in the flesh, who humbled himself, and probably the tip of the spear on becoming a holy, godly, sanctified cooperator with God in your personal sanctification is how you control your tongue. What you say and how you say what you say. That's profound. That is profound and mundane at the same time. So, you want to disciple someone? You want to disciple your kids? You want to disciple a friend? You want to grow in your own faith? You want to work with someone on becoming more holy? Start with what you say and how you say what you say. We'll have a whole series on that coming up in Ephesians chapter 4, by the way. So just hold that till then. I told you, put a bookmark in your mind about Isaiah. He was sanctified by the Lord dealing with his lips. Paul says, God gave Jesus a name, bestowed on him the affirmation of his deity, his lordship, so that everyone would know where to work our salvation alongside him, because of him, and through him, and with him. And the first thing you do is learn how to control your tongue. No grumbling, no disputing. Grumbling, complaining, disputing, interacting with others. I mean, think about it, when we complain... What we're saying is, I don't like what God has done in my life in his providence. Now, we might not like that, but we can learn to love the Lord who gave us those opportunities to see him. John Newton said, ah, what a poor, cold, confused, inconsistent creature I am. I am a poor servant indeed. And my only comfort springs from thinking, which I do too seldom and too faintly. My only comfort springs from thinking, what a wondrous master I serve. Lordship. He calls the shots. He's the Lord where the slave He's the master, we're the student. I said at the beginning that Jesus is referred to 92 times in the book of Acts as Lord and only twice as Savior. That doesn't diminish his role as Savior. But it does tell us that to come to Jesus is to come submitting to him as your your Lord, your master. And that's easy if you know he's your redeemer and friend, that he is good and does good, that he cares for you, that he'll never leave you or forsake you, he'll never abandon you as an orphan, that he promises, he promises that his love for you will never be separated by anything on this planet in Romans 8. When you know what Jesus is like, when you have tasted of his lordship, Being his slave and being his follower is a joy, not a burden. I trust you've done that. If you haven't, a great day to hear who the Lord is and that you could experience salvation. Today, you can be freed from your sin. Today, today, sitting where you are right now, you can turn from your sin, receive the salvation gift of God. Submit to him as Lord and he will become your savior.